Yeah. I said, uh, that makes me feel a little better, you know, because I'm, I'm relatively new at this. Uh, Babs has been doing this for about 24 years, she said. And so if she's still nervous, it's okay that I am too. But I'm really looking forward to, to hearing Babs this morning. Um, I've talked to her on the phone a couple of times and um, talked with her just a little, uh, but enough to know that she hasn't been around the program of Al-Anon. She's been in the program of Al-Anon. And she has an awful lot to share with us this morning. And so at this time, if you will, help me welcome Bab B. Thank you, Deborah. Excuse me, I had fish last night. I noticed none of the other speakers excused themselves when they did that. Good morning, everybody. My name is Babkin. I'm a grateful, recovering Alana. Hey, how are you? It's just, yeah, isn't it neat? I've had such a terrific time. You know, when I was raising kids, and I only I had just one left at home, and the others were toiling away in elementary school, thinking that I was home changing beds and cleaning toilets. I used to stick Timothy with a babysitter and go to an afternoon movie. And I felt somewhat like a pervert must feel. Of course, the only other people at the movie were perverts. <laughs> but it's just that I knew I was someplace I shouldn't have been and that made it so delicious. And Jan and I came in here Thursday. I'm a career woman. I can't take Thursday and Friday off. I should not have been here. I've loved every minute of it. It's been almost like cutting school. <laughs> to have a four-day convention is quite a treat. That means by this evening I will have remembered my room number and how to get there. <laughs> bring you greetings from Blanche and Nell and Cleve and David and Gracie. And I really don't. I just want you to be impressed with the kind of people I hang out with. <laughs> but uh, I do want to mention my friend June. Uh, June's chairing a meeting tonight at the Duncanville group there in outside of Dallas, and I promised June I'd mention her name here if she'd mention mine there. <laughs> so that's out of the way. I want to thank the committee for um, graciously including me in this weekend, and it's good to see so many familiar faces. Um, Leon from the island, the island, here I talk. <laughs> Lord, I've been here once or twice, so now it's dead. I met him at Edisto, and it was it's good to see him again. He's right. He is a good-looking young fellow. 
touch. I feel like I know him. He uh, originally called me, and we've had several chats on the phone. I did what I could. You could see how successful I've been. <laughs> I've uh, I've enjoyed this uh, position. I find myself in uh, several other times. I'm. I have often been the token Al-Anon speaker at the AA convention. <laughs> you know, we're there to kind of keep it legal, I guess. And uh, as a result of those experiences, I must have heard well over a hundred Al-Anon jokes. And being a narrow-minded, judgmental person that I am, <laughs> I kind of grade them, you know. And I want you to know, Tut has scummed the bottom of all the... <laughs> I was, I'll be honest with you, I was generous enough this morning to share two really good ones with him. And he didn't have the cojones to tell them to you. So there you have it. I'm going to take my watch off, my Rolex watch, <laughs> and I'll explain to you how you two can have a Rolex in a little bit. Uh, and I'm going to lay it up here to give you the impression that I give a damn what time it is. <laughs> Look at O'Leon grabbing another tape. Bless your heart, Leon. You're going to lose your butt here today. So, you know, if, if you're finished before I am, it's all right if you leave. It doesn't bother me in the least. Um, I told you that I was a grateful recovering Al-Anon, and you know, many days I am. And some days I'm not grateful, and some days I'm not recovering. And some days I'm neither one. And that's the honest truth of it. I've been doing this for quite some time. It took me a while to understand what they were trying to tell me. Something happens to those of us that live in alcoholism. And I think it's a, it's a common thread that runs through all of our experiences. I got lost in there somewhere. Now, I used to think that I had a good idea of who and what I was before I got mixed up in that mess. But I have come to understand, you know, God lets you know what you need to know when you're ready. And I have come to understand that I'm not sure I ever knew who I was or what I was or where I was. It seems that for as long ago as I can remember, I have been trying to fashion myself so that you would approve of me. Some of my earliest memories are of that, of reacting spontaneously and naturally to something and having an adult that I cared about say, oh, Barbara Ann, we don't cry like that. I'll give you an example. I went to a high school reunion not too long ago. I won't tell you which one it was because God, it even depressed me. And uh, most of the class showed up. And in their remarks to me, almost 
to a man. They said, you know what I remember best about you, Babs? You were such a good sport. I will tell you, my friends, of my few attributes, being a good sport has never, ever been one of them. I have a memory that refuses to forget. And I'll get you. But of course, it won't be face on. That's the honest way. I'll wait till your defenses are down and your back is turned. And then I'll go through two or three other people, but I'll get you. Good sports don't behave that way. But you know, then there's another thing. How do you know somebody's a good sport? Because you screw them. I mean, that's how you know. <laughs> the good sport is the one that you forget to pick up to take to the movies. You get everybody else. Coming out of the movies, you say, what happened to Babs? Oh, my Lord, we didn't pick up that. Well, don't worry about it. She's a good sport. <laughs> now, that's who I really am and always have been. But until I realized that, until I knew that, I couldn't do anything to change it. I didn't know there was a change that needed to be made. I have always considered myself one of the most self-sacrificing people I've ever known. Generous to a fault. One of the greatest saints the Roman Catholic Church has ever had. And the tragedy is, I really believe that. And then something devastating happened to me that I refused to see coming. And I'll never forget, once it was there, the first words I thought and the first words I uttered were, my God, what's going to happen to me? So much for my self-sacrifice and my martyrdom. <laughs> I'm telling you, when the ship's going down, I'll probably be the first one off. <laughs> so, that said, I will make a deal with you. If you can open your mind, or better yet, just kind of put it on hold. I don't know if your mind works like mine, but, you know, it's really not my friend. It never has been. <laughs> it's a very dangerous place for me to try to stay too long. <laughs> so instead, if you open your heart and let my heart talk to yours, I have something I need to tell you. And I will be as honest with you this day about who I am and what I am as I can. I wish I could tell you that the first alcoholic I ever knew was the one I married. I think that makes us look a little swifter somehow, don't you? <laughs> but the truth is, uh, I've been around this damn disease all my life. I was born into a family riddled with it. Of course, we didn't call it that. Uh, we called it pressure. Um, I come from a long line of very strong, long-suffering women. Women who I seldom remember ever having a good day. I mean, it's, it's just a given that today is going to be worse than yesterday. 
in God, you just hang on for dear life. But of course, you stay in it. You know, you stay wherever God has placed you. And nobody ever left, except my mom. My mom was the first one I ever knew who found an out. And once she found that revolving door, it seemed she used it quite often. Quite often. And what that meant for me growing up was, much like you heard Michael say, I didn't want to be like my mom. Didn't want to be like my mom. Now, my mom wasn't an alcoholic. It's just that my mom took great delight in men. Lots of them. And it really didn't seem to make any difference if they belonged to somebody else or not. My mother was in her heyday during World War II, and I used to come visit her. Of course, I came introduced as her niece, which should have told you a little something. And I didn't like the way that made me feel. And I didn't like my mother very much. So very early on, I determined that when I got married, I would stay married, um, if it killed him. <laughs> and it damn near did. <laughs> my parents were divorced before I was a year old. I never really knew my father. My mother decided that he did not have a right to visit with me. And then she went off to seek her fame and fortune, and she left me in a small town in northwestern Illinois in the care of her parents. And for the first five years of my life, I was raised by my grandparents. Now, I know there are some of you in this audience who have not had that privilege. I will tell you, it is indeed a privilege. Because my earliest memories of being loved is of them. And my grandparents loved me the way I have come to understand each of us has a right to be loved. And even more important, each of us has a responsibility to love at least one other human being that way. And that is they loved me just because I was there. I never had to do anything to earn it, and I knew it. And I also knew there was nothing I could do that would threaten or destroy it. It is the most delightful, secure feeling. And those of you who haven't experienced it, being loved for fun and for free, keep coming back, because it happens often in our fellowship. The only thing wrong about grandparents, I don't know if you've noticed, Jan noticed, they start out old. <laughs> and you know, by the time I'm four or five, they're arthritic enough, they hard to keep up with me. But in that little town up on a hill, in a two-story white house, lived the most fabulous people I ever knew. And my dream was always, if one day I could just go live with him. It was my mother's older sister. She was uh, 14 years older. And she was very comfortable in her role of wife and mother. They had two little girls, a little older than I. He had a white dog named Teddy and a black cat named Smokey Joe. My uncle was the mayor and head of the school board. That came in handy, believe me. Uh, 
the only dentist in town, so he had a thriving practice. He was a hometown boy who'd made good and came back home the hero. I don't think he had an enemy in the world. And he was spectacular. I want to talk to you a little bit about early alcoholism because that's why many of us Al-Anon still have to go to meetings. We get hooked on that. I mean, early alcoholics are just... They're something else, aren't they? They make everybody else look beige. You know, they just... Lord. And my uncle was that way. He had a full head of black hair and he parted it down the middle. Big, bushy black mustache. He had hair that creeped up out of his shirt collar. To this day, I'm a sucker for body hair. In fact, there's a woman in my... Well, that's another story. <laughs> anyway, he was the first man I ever truly, really fell in love with. Oh. And I can remember going to bed at night after I got to go live with him. And I would ask God, earnestly, please, God, when I'm old enough to be married, please send me somebody just like Uncle Glenn. And God did. <laughs> My uncle was, a, you know, a big fish in a little pond, and I loved belonging to him. I loved the kind of familiarity and notoriety that gave me. I knew that my friends envied me for the family I lived with. Oh, it was terrific. He decided, I guess, that the social life there in that little northwestern Illinois town was lacking, so he brought the moose to town. Now, I don't know if you've got the moose here, but if you don't, you've got the BFW or the Elks or the something. They're all very similar. Private clubs. They have bar rooms about as big as this meeting room. And then they have meeting rooms about as big as this table. And of course, my uncle was one of the head antlers on the moose, you know. Um, and if he wasn't in his office, he was at the moose. And I really, to this day, don't know what the moose is about. I do recall that they ran an orphanage in Indiana called Mooseheart. I think it was where all the orphan children of dead meese who had drunk themselves to death went. <laughs> but we were forever, you know, having fundraisers for those poor little orphans. And I pretty much grew up in the moose. Um, my aunt went downtown every afternoon and got groceries, and then she stopped around at the moose. She had discovered if she couldn't beat him, she'd join him. And I would go after school to the moose to get a ride home. And oftentimes, before I was old enough to stay alone, I went to the moose at night when they did. And I played the piano in the dance hall, and I played the slot machines, and I came really good at bowling, you know, that shuffleboard thing. I got pretty good. And I hated it. I mean, it was neat for, you know, maybe the first 10, 12 trips. But I became aware early on that when people drink, I become insignificant. Children sense that. And I watched it happen to my own, my own kids. 
I became insignificant. I was damned important most of the time. But not when we drank. By the time I was in junior high, I had uh, come up with a name for the ugly animal. It was called alcoholism. And I knew that as soon as I got out of there, I'd be okay. As soon as I get out of there, I'll be okay. And so continued the way I handled life well into Al-Anon. As soon as this happens, I'll be okay. There are people who go to their own funerals still waiting for, as soon as this happens, I'll be okay. If Al-Anon gave me nothing else, it gave me the immediacy of, today I'm fine. Today I'm okay. Back then, the only way you'd get out of the house was if you got married or you went off to college. You couldn't leave just because you had a job. I can remember as if it was yesterday, my aunt saying to me over the kitchen table, I don't know why you want to get an apartment, Babs. What is it that you want to do in your apartment that you can't do here in your very own home? Now, I knew what it was, and so did she. <laughs> and I looked around that little town. Everybody there worked for the railroad, and the railroad was on its way out. And they didn't show a lot of promise to me. I was after bigger and better things, so I decided I'd make a shot at college. I sent off the letters and transcripts and all that stuff you do. And one day I got a letter from Austin, Texas. The University of Texas was willing to make me a deal. I wouldn't have to pay out-of-state tuition. They were kind of anxious to have me, in fact. And it just was a really good deal. And I'd like to tell you that I, I made that decision based on the finances, but that isn't true. I made that decision based on the distance. Because Austin's a damn long way from Illinois, and that meant I wouldn't have to come home on weekends, probably wouldn't have to come home on holidays. So I made a life-changing decision based on somebody else's drinking. It happens every day in alcoholic homes all over this world. I had no idea what I was getting into. I didn't realize that once you've been in Texas, for whatever the required period of time is, you are absolutely incapable of leaving. <laughs> you find that you've adjusted so well to the way those people live that you don't fit anywhere else. Today, when I go home to visit what family I have left in Illinois, their children and their neighbor's kids want to come hear me because of my southern drawl. See, I didn't know. I was really excited about going to college. I mean, uh, I'd watched it in the movies and, and, you know. So my aunt and I went to Chicago and went to Carson Perry Scott and chose my college wardrobe. I, I was very careful about my, what I would wear for my debut because I wanted them to realize what a young sophisticate they had here. And so that beautiful September day, I was aboard a plane bound from Chicago to Austin. I had on my cashmere sweater set. 
Some of you are old enough to remember that. You bought this short sleeve sweater about four sizes too small and your boobs just fought to get out of there. And then you had this matching cardigan thrown casually over your shoulder. I had on my 100% wool, fully lined, pleated Shetland skirt. Oh, wish you could have seen it. Had the fringe on. Oh, God. And, of course, I had on my matching cashmere knee socks. And they were finished off with my little Basswegian tasseled loafers. I just, I couldn't get enough of myself. I just, uh... The only word for it was precious. I was just precious. And the plane landed in Austin, and they opened those doors, and... Back in those days, you had to climb down those stairs, and as I hit the stairs, I realized it was about 165 degrees in the shade. And if that wasn't enough of a clue that uh, I had landed in an alien land, I discovered that they had uh, assigned me to a dormitory where every last female in there had a serious speech problem. It, uh, it took them forever to say anything. Ugh. They walk slow and they talk slow. And I had this almost uncontrollable urge to reach in their mouths and just yank their little tongue. Yeah. I had been in a hurry all my life. I never approached anything except at a dead run. And it was as if I had fallen in this vat of molasses. I just... <laughs> and then one night I was forced to go to a freshman reception far beneath my dignity. But reluctantly I went in a place called Gregory Gym. Why would you name a gymnasium Gregory? Because Clyde was already taken, I guess. I don't know. Anyway, I walked in, and it's exactly what I knew it would be. This droopy orange and white crepe paper hanging off ceiling. Over here, all these girls lined up. They've got their compacts out. They're in their little Kremlin skirts and their poodle skirts. Little ballerina shoes, you know. Lord, when she mentioned the Enchantress... The goddess of, all, of us all, Debbie Reynolds, my heart just... Michael knows. She knows what those days were like. Anyway, here they are all over there fixing their makeup that hasn't been damaged, you know. <laughs> and over here are all these guys. There's no action on the middle of the floor at all. These guys are all over here kind of staring down at the floor, digging their toes in doing whatever it is they do when they've got their hands in their pockets. And, and I wasn't surprised. I knew that. God, I had fallen into a junior high school. That's what it was. I came up on the stage much like this to get myself a glass of punch. And it put me enough above the crowd as I am here today that I could kind of take a census, you know. And I looked. And I realized that for every poor young damsel over here, there were at least nine or ten guys over here. 
This was 1951. The Korean War was not winding down. The vets were coming home. They'd been in those womanless jungles for a year or so. Every last one of them was horny. <laughs> the only requirement for being a sex goddess in 1951 was that you'd be breathing in and out. <laughs> And I'll tell you, the thought occurred to me. I said, you know, Barbara Ann, I'll bet if you put your mind to it, you could adjust here. <laughs> and because this wasn't this an honest program, I am here to confess that I damn near adjusted myself right out of there. <laughs> I mean, adjust I did. Loved it. I loved every minute of my time there. It was... Uh, it was terrific. I feel sorry for kids today with their openness and their honesty. Where's the fun in that? <laughs> we used to lie uncontrollably to each other. It made it so much more exciting. By the time I was a junior, uh, I realized that some of the better ones had been picked off and I better get down to business. I mean, I'd had fun now, but this is serious. Because I did not want to leave that place without uh, something working. I knew when I got out in that cold, hard world, most of the men I would meet would be pot-bellied and balding. And uh, I had a much better chance there on campus. So I dug in, and I mean, I really got with it. By then, I had uh, only really two, cry two items in my criteria. First of all, God knows I didn't want to marry an alcoholic. Please. And besides, I was far too intelligent for that. So I needed someone who knew how to drink. And I also, uh, I also didn't ever want to have to face divorce. Divorce has to be the most demeaning. It says to the entire world, hey, I'm a loser. I don't want that. That was my mom. No. So what I needed was a Roman Catholic who knew how to drink. I didn't know that was a redundant requirement at the time, but I went looking. Oh, my. And wouldn't you ask God's help, too? And wouldn't you know he came to me as a, as a product of a blind date? And he looked good. My first impression was, wow, he looks good. But, of course, if he was as good as he looked, he'd have never taken me out. So what I needed was somebody who looks good, but has just enough flaws that both he and I know he needs me. <laughs> and that's what God sent me. He was very shy, very ill at ease. Couldn't tell me his name. I told him his name. <laughs> and then I told him where we were going. And then I led him to his car. We drove to his fraternity house. It was a party. We walked in. He tripped over the flowers and the rug. And I began meeting people, and there were several people there that I already knew. And, but, oh, he looked good. Damn, he looked good. And then he had two drinks, maybe three. But I saw this transformation take place. 
I'm sitting there talking to somebody else, and this extremely good-looking fellow comes up. And he grabs my hand and he says, Excuse me, doll. May I have this dance? It talked. <laughs> well, he not only danced with me, he danced with anything that walked in it. <laughs> he was at ease. He was glib. He was funny. I mean, really funny. My Lord. Two or three drinks had done that. And then I knew he'd never have a problem with alcohol. <laughs> Look how well it works for him. <laughs> now, I'd like you to tell you that, you know, he got wall-eyed and knocked kneed He didn't. He drank more than anybody else there. And then he drove everybody home. I mean, he was in terrific shape. He had more than a hollow leg. The whole thing must have been hollow. And then he took me home, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, you know. He said, by the way, I'm going to 6.30 Mass in the morning. You want to go with me? Well, I was going to settle for him even if he was a Baptist. I didn't realize, you know. Wow. So we went to Mass and then to brunch. He confided in me that back in his altar boy days he had hoped to be a priest. But then someone explained celibacy to him. And I thought, Barbara Ann, you got this hot to trot almost priest here. Who knows how to drink? What more could you ask? My cup runneth over. And so I went after him. I wish it hadn't been that way. I would rather you think that I was the one pursued, but that wasn't the case. I went after him. And if nothing else, people of my description are tenacious. And I just ran him down. That's what I <laughs> I just ran him down. And one Saturday morning in Houston, we were married at a cathedral there. At a 45-minute nuptial mass with all the stuff, the flowers and attendants and the two priests. We had his priest and my priest because we couldn't decide which priest to use. See, now, to a normal person, that would have been kind of a red flag, don't you think? I'll tell you that when I left that church, I was married. If I knew nothing else, I knew I was married. And uh, I can't tell you how long I've been waiting for that moment. Oh, to be married. Now, you see, that gives you a purpose. And God knows I knew what the purpose was. First of all, you've got to have a savings account. Start putting that money in that savings account. You have to go to work every day. You have to show up. You have to stay till the clock says five. You can't call in sick. You have to watch your pennies. I mean, marriage is a serious business. You have to start right now, getting ready to buy that house and that car with the wood on the sides and all that stuff. And there is no time for fun and games. Fun and games are over. And I begin explaining that to him on the honeymoon. Now, he describes that period in my life a little different. He says I went from adolescence to menopause in 45 minutes. That's not true. That is not true.
We've been married I don't know how long. But he had changed. <laughs> I mean, you see, I married his potential, of course. And all he needed was a good, strong woman to point the way for him. I knew that. And I could do that. And God knows I tried. And I did it in every way I could imagine. We had chats. We had uh, arguments. We had knockdown dragouts. The best was when I discovered him that during those intimate times in your bedroom, that if you stop the intimate times, you have their attention. <laughs> and so I began doing that. Hold it, hold it right there just a minute. <laughs> something, I wanna, something I wanna talk about. And you know they are so agreeable. Oh, Lord. He agreed to anything, anything. But things just weren't working out. I don't know how to explain it to you. It was as if I was married and he was dating. So I figured out that if we had a child, um, you heard Jen. I mean, we all think that way, I think. If he had a child, then he would rise to that occasion. And so I got pregnant. I got pregnant. We didn't get pregnant. Don't kid yourself into thinking we ever got pregnant. I got pregnant. I lugged that volleyball around for nine months. And I delivered a baby. We didn't deliver a baby. <laughs> and it was no fun. I didn't enjoy one minute of it. I had worked in hospitals when I was in college, and I had heard of those old labor room nurses, the old blue-haired, tight-lipped ones, you know, when somebody's hollering and screaming, saying things like, she thinks it hurts. If she just relaxed, the pain would go away. Har, har. I believe that. I felt betrayed. And it was damn painful. And I've done it many times. And I will tell you, the last time was just as bad as the first time. It does not get easier. Any of you who are entertaining those thoughts, ladies, I'll tell you. I was introduced to episiotomy. I bet many of you don't even know what that is. See, they don't mention that. That's where after the baby's born, after the baby's born, you hear the doctor say, scalpel. Then they split you from stem to stern. And then they sew you up like that. And you would think, with all that education, they could slip tab A into slot A, but they never do. And you know it. As soon as you wake up, you know it. You don't sit down for a year and a half. <laughs> so we had this beautiful little girl and these idiot nuns set this child home with us. I couldn't believe that. Five days old and she, they trust this kid to us. We didn't know what, we didn't even have puppies. We didn't know what we were doing. 
some months, I have diaper rash up to my armpits, and he's still doing his thing, and I got this kid, and now I'm a mother. You want to hear me now? We're not parents. I'm a mother. And I just discovered it's 24 hours a day. I kept thinking, God, I wish this kid's folks would come home and pay me off so I can... And then I knew what it was. She was very small, you know. If we had two, he couldn't ignore two or three. And then we're transferred to San Antonio. Then I knew what it was. He didn't have any sons. We had these three little girls. He didn't have anybody to hunt with, fish with. Of course, he didn't hunt or fish, but still. <laughs> so I got myself pregnant again. This time it was different. Something was different. And I went to a doctor finally. I was about six months gone. He said, can you take a picture? Yes. Took me to his office. Well, Mrs. Black, I think there are four, possibly only three. I said, babies. <laughs> and he said, yeah. And I'll tell you, the honest truth is I was just pissed. I just didn't know. <laughs> I don't know how else to describe how I felt. Because I thought I'd been a real good sport up to now. always pass the other ones off as God's blessings and you know all that and now they're coming in litters and I just don't think that's right <laughs> oh Lord and I'm not even divorced yet well, uh, we must move on I know this is fun but we must move on anyway by the time I got home Mother Nature had done a little number in my head, and I began to think, you know, if he thinks there's four, there could be five. And this is back in the mid-50s, you know, I mean, we didn't have any American quints or anything. Golly, just think, if there's five, the Gerber baby truck would drive up once a week and dump all that stuff off. The government would build a wing on our house, send all the kids to college, you know. We'd be on the front of Life magazine. Edward Murrow would see us now. The tour bus from Jekyll Island would drive up into our driveway. All these white-haired people wanting to see where the Quince lived, you know. I mean, I was so excited, I could hardly wait to give the news to Father Dion. And I squealed into the driveway, and he was babysitting the kids. I could see him locked out there in the backyard. Now, whenever he was saddled with that duty, which wasn't often, he would always fortify himself with a few beers, you know, just to take the edge off. And whenever he did that, he looked fuzzy to me. I can't explain that phenomenon because I'd had no beer, but I, I could tell by the degree of fuzziness how much he'd had. And I went into the house, and here he stood at the mantel, feeling absolutely no pain. And he kind of looked at me with that lopsided grin they get, you know. And he said, well, honey, what did the doctor say? Because so, we both hoped it was a tumor. 
And I said, uh, the doctor says there are four, possibly only three. I don't know what I expected him to say. First of all, it was the first time I'd ever seen instant sobriety. Have any of you ever seen that? Oh. They ought to do studies on that. I just... Anyway, he gave one of those jerks, and he looked me dead in the eye. And I will tell you, he was as sober as that moment as he'd ever been in his life. And he said to me, my God, Babs, what have you done to me now? And the tragedy is I felt guilty. As if pregnancy is something you do in the dead of night, you know, when everybody else is asleep. The babies were born about three weeks later. They were almost a little over two months, premature. There weren't four or three. There were only two. A little boy and a little girl. They weighed a pound and a half and two pounds. And back in those days, babies that small seldom have ever survived. They were born in the only civilian hospital in San Antonio that had any and yet there we were. They wouldn't let us see them. And when I demanded the right to see them, then they suggested we not name them. We not get too involved because it was obvious they would not survive. That was uh, 35 years ago. That boy named Clay stands six foot one and a half, weighs 185 pounds, and has seven years sobriety in Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> and the girl, Christy, his twin, stands 5'5". Five, five. Thank you, God. I was always afraid it'd be the other way around. <laughs> and she weighs about 125 pounds. And she has lived her life in such a way that she has gifted me with one of the most beautiful grandchildren named Danny Rose. Back then, uh, I had utterly no idea, no concept of the phrase we use so commonly. Please, God, tell me your will for me and give me the power to carry it out. I knew what God's will was for me. And those kids, what's his name? And the whole world, the whole world. I knew it all. I was just having difficulty getting it done. You know, it's, it's like herding cats. <laughs> we have a guy back in Dallas that says, you work all those years trying to get your ducks in a row. And then you come down and on, they tell you they're not your ducks. And he's right. And I was getting the ducks in a row. And I knew those twins needed to live. The truth was I was afraid I could not survive if they did not. Me, me, me again. How would I handle the grief of losing them? And they lived. They were there almost three months. Before they were five pounds and we could bring them home. And that meant that when we brought the twins home, 
We had five children, and the oldest had not yet reached her fourth birthday. Don't laugh and don't moan. I don't mention your handicaps, and I'd rather you didn't mention mine. A lot of those years have been mercifully erased from my mind. <laughs> to give you an idea of what it was like, though, I will share two things that I seem to recall, I can't seem to forget. It seems whenever uh, those five kids and I went anywhere, the neighbors would come out to watch. <laughs> Television was fairly new, and we certainly were better than any comedy show they had on there. Uh, Kathy had learned how to open the car door, for example. She's the oldest. So it was like one of those clown cars in the circus, you know. I'd put them in one side and they'd go out the other. <laughs> and of course, the whole time I'm screaming, threatening to break all their legs if they move and they're just running. And oh, God. The twins used to, uh, I used to carry them around in these little chair affairs. They didn't have a handle or anything. And I, they had straps, but I never belted them in. Where were they going, right? And uh, they laid in these things, and they were kind of like barca loungers, I suppose. And uh, you can only carry one at a time. And then, of course, we always had something we were taking somewhere when we left. I didn't just leave the house because I was tired of being in the house, let me tell you. If I left, is something important. So I take the three kids out and threaten them with death and get them in the back seat. And then the youngest, Paula, would say, I have to titi. I'd say, do you really? Yes, I really do. And then she'd be on the shoe. <laughs> so then I'd say to Kathy and Julie, you stay in this car. Stay, do you hear? Read my, stay in this car. And then I'd haul Paula in and I'd change her underwear and change my shoes. And now we come back out, there's no kids. Where are you? And I scream. If I catch you, I'm going to kill you. Where are you? <laughs> and then I'd see a little skirt go around the corner, and I'd take off at a dead run after that one. And I finally get the three of them back in the car all the time, screaming. And I go get the twins, and I bring the first one out, put them in the rear end of that tailgate. And we didn't have seat belts or anything, you know, car seats, any of that stuff. And what I would do is when the twins got, kids got a little rowdy, I'd just take that corner kind of hard and they'd just all scoot over. <laughs> got their attention, believe me. <laughs> and, you know, I'd throw that one twin there in the tailgate and then I went in and got another twin and as I was putting her in the tailgate, I thought, wait a minute, I don't have the whatever it is, you know, the groceries, the basket, whatever. So I take this twin out, I put them on top, and I put that twin on top, and then the kids get out of the car, and then I go chase them. And then I get them in, and then the dog gets out of the backyard, and then I put the, and then I go in and I get the basket, whatever I, and you have a window about this big. When everybody's in there, you better have that motor running, and that thing in gear. And I mean, I got that basket in there, I slam that tailgate. Hopped in that car just as Kathy was reaching for that doorknob. Said, you touch that door, you're dead. Started up that wagon and backed out of there. One more time, I'd gotten away. We hit that loop in San Antonio, doing about, I don't know, 45, 50. This red pickup truck pulls up beside us. Two good old boys in there in gimme caps. 
They're trying to pick me up. Well, they were. They're honking that horn and making all sorts of gestures, you know. And I'm looking at them, I'm thinking, how long have you boys been out in the country? Do you see all these kids in here? This isn't a daycare, you jerks. These are mine. I'm an obstetric wreck, and you're trying to pick me up? Give me a break. And they kept... So I said to Kathy, Kathy, uh, is Julie sitting down? Yes, Mama. Is Paula sitting down? Paula likes standing on the seat. Is Paula sitting down? Yes, Mama. Are the twins all right? The twins aren't here, Mama. My God, where are the twins? I tried to think where I last saw them. Finally, you get to an exit, you know, you can pull off. I pull off, I jump out of that car. Here they are up on top, their little eyeballs are all peeled off. <laughs> to this day, Christy's a little bug-eyed and she blames me. babies in that tailgate and I swore those other three I say if you ever tell a world of course I've told this all over the country now but for years it was our deepest darkest secret mama forgot the babies on top of the car and of course this was after God had abandoned us you know and that I am forced to handle my life all on my own I'll just sum those years up by saying I did not have a bowel movement in a room by myself till I was 41 years old. <laughs> and I would also like to tell you the sad but honest truth that I have never, ever lived alone. Never. I'm trying real hard to get Timothy out on his own again. That's our youngest son. But I was thinking the other day, you know, if Tim really does grow up and leave, he's only 32. <laughs> but if he really does make that leap, I'll probably have to rent somebody to come in. We eventually had Timothy. He made number six. And by then, something had happened inside of me. I had begun to die. I've heard other Al-Anons talk about it. I heard one uh, fella describe it as freezing off, and I like that. I like that. Psychiatrists call it disassociation. I don't care what they call it. What it means is that uh, you find a way to freeze inside so that whatever has been hurt is no longer vulnerable. And it means you don't feel pain, you don't feel fear, you don't feel anger. Works. Problem is you can't be selective. You also don't feel hope, you don't feel joy. You lose all interest in life around you. And that's what happened to me. I knew life was a bitch. I knew the best part of my life was over. 
You know, I couldn't expect to have the good times last forever. After all, I was 35. And I knew it was downhill from now on. And I don't know why. We'd been transferred to Dallas. My husband had the best job he'd ever had. He was making more money than he ever had. We had the new house we had built, and we had that car with the wood on the sides. We had a sailboat. You need a sailboat in a port city like Dallas. <laughs> and we had six children who looked physically beautiful. If you had seen us, you would have thought we had it made. And there was nothing there. There was nothing there. I don't know why he went for help. I have utterly no idea. I assume for the, so re the reason that so many alcoholics come for help. He got sick and tired of being sick and tired. He went to see a man at the Dallas Council on Alcoholism who then turned around and called me on the phone and told me that he thought I ought to go with my husband to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous that night. And my first words were, I don't drink. And his reply was, you know, I've not been surprised by that. <laughs> and then he said the magic words, you know, he said, if you don't take him, we'll never know whether or not he was there. And I said, what's the address? <laughs> I saw AA as his ultimate punishment. I knew it would be humiliating and degrading, and I didn't want to miss a minute of it. <laughs> I figured I'd earned it. You know, we get a kid, we accused of uh, running a ship. But you can't run a ship if there's somebody already at the helm. We don't do that. We sit in the back of the boat with the alcoholic as the ship's going over the waterfall. And we say, somebody's got to do something. And he says, I'll drink to that. <laughs> <laughs> and so you get up and do something. And because I got up and did something, I took over areas of our lives that were none of my damn business. I noticed that, for example, he, his memory was really bad. That was the second thing to go, was the memory. And then on top of that, he went deaf, and he couldn't hear. We'd be out at a restaurant, he'd go to the restroom, he'd come out, here he is in all his glory, just grinning, and I would say as he came out the door, your fly's open. Huh? <clears throat> your fly is open. What? Your fly is open, then 12 tables turn around to check to see if I know what I'm talking about. So I knew what the answer was. I became very deft at zipping his fly. I would do it. He didn't know I did it. If you were there, you wouldn't have known I did it. I could just glide in front of him, and these two hands went here, and I got a good ching, and it was done. Done. I never told anybody. I didn't expect credit. I saw a need, and I filled it. Somehow I thought I was responsible when he was in Dallas County for his fly. I began thinking of myself as the keeper of the fly. <laughs> we got off the elevator that night in October to go to AA meeting, and I checked him out, of course. 
I didn't want him going in looking like a drunk, you know. But he looks really good. And then I checked him out, and of course, I wasn't surprised. So I zipped his fly, and in we went. It was not at all what I expected. First of all, I was escorted out of my first AA meeting. They didn't have that little deal any yet that said, you know, when anyone anywhere reaches out for help. God knows I needed help. And about five minutes to eight, an ugly woman came up to me and she said, are you alcoholic? I said, are you crazy? <laughs> she said, then you have to leave. This is a closed meeting. It's for alcoholics only. I said, well, pardon the hell out of me. It's for alcoholics? Can you believe that? And they threw me a little room next door. They said it was Al Nunn. Now this is very important. I need to tell you this. There were three speakers that night. I sat over against the wall, totally disinterested, watching the clock. Couldn't wait till nine o'clock. The first two were Al Nunn. I can't tell you what they said. I have utterly no idea what they said. The third one was there for me. The third one was a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And skeptic that I was. I could not have heard anything except from the horse's mouth, so to speak. And he stood up at a podium much like this, with a room of about a hundred people. And he told what it was like to be an alcoholic. I had lived in it all my life, and I never wondered what it must be like. He told how it feels to make promises to the only people you, only people you care for, and to really, really mean the promises and to know deep down in yourself somewhere that you're not going to be able to keep this one either. He talked about the loneliness. God, I didn't know that people who walled themselves up were allowed to feel lonely. I had that night what I've heard described as an Al-Anon slip, got a little compassion. <laughs> But I got something else even more important. I got hope. Because this man was living proof that there was a solution. That what was did not necessarily have to continue to be. And so my hopes were raised one more time. That was October the 4th of 1970. And by the grace of God, and some nosy, strong Al-Anons who absolutely refused to stay out of my business. I have been coming to meetings ever since. Our lives began to change that night. That very night. And it wasn't because he didn't drink anymore. It was because all these people came in. People just like you. Who were willing to share their experience, strength, hope, and success, and failure with us freely. Didn't cost a damn dime. Terrific. My kids got involved in Helentine right away. I was given no choice. I dragged the two oldest kicking and screaming to an Helentine meeting because I was told to. They told me I couldn't come back if, unless I showed up with them. They say today they didn't say that, but I know what they said to me. And it seems like in no time at all, Alateen became a rite of passage in our house. All six of our children were blessed 
with the Alateen program, and I am convinced that's why Tim and Clay are sober today. Because they knew that us, this marvelous, blessed thing that we nurture and share with each other, is a place of laughter. It's a place of fun. I've been thrown out of more places sober than we ever were in the drinking. We just get out of hand, don't we? I can't tell you how many times I've laughed so uncontrollably, I wet my pants. This is a glorious, free way of life. And my children experienced it young. They know where the help is. My husband's parents came to live with us, and uh, they were quite elderly. My mother-in-law was dying. So Dad built a garage apartment above our house, and he and Ella slipped up there. And I was able to handle that. Of course, I went to three or four meetings a day, but nonetheless, I was handling it. <laughs> and we had begun to sponsor people. He sponsored the ones that wore long pants, and I sponsored their wives that wore skirts. Our lives were full and glorious, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade a minute of any of that. The kids were just uh, fabulous. I was able to make amends to them in ways I never thought would be possible, and build a relationship with them that prevails today. I began to feel good about myself. I began to feel that I might have some worth. My sponsor put me into service work very, very early. If you're sponsoring someone and they don't seem to be making it, I suggest you might want to do that. Give them a bath of fire. Because I was stood up in front and told to get out the coffee cups. I was told to stand at the door and be a greeter before I really knew what my name was. And I was brought up on that kind of thinking. I don't know how else we get out of ourselves, do you? I am always, always my best when I'm listening to you. When I'm out of me and concerned about you, I'm the best I'm ever going to be. We've been in the program eight years. I was working at the Allen Information Center. I knew our lives weren't what they could be, but they were so much better than they ever had been. And my husband told me he wanted a divorce. And that's when I said, my God, what's going to happen to me? There were a lot more people than me involved there, you know. We still had three kids at home, two in college. He's an only child, as am I. His parents lived upstairs. And I said, you can't do this. Don't ever say that to an alcoholic. I said, you can't, and he did it. His father was a retired attorney. And when Dad found out, he came downstairs and he said, I want to be your lawyer. I said, well, hell, I could afford you anyway. And I don't know how to explain what happened except to just tell you we cleaned his clock. Why wouldn't we for crying out loud? <laughs> you accuse us of being in denial. <laughs> He walked out with his alligator shoes and two pair of jockey shorts, his Timex watch. What time does this Rolex say? Uh, 
and I got the boat and the house and the furniture and the cars and the kids and the dog and the cat and his parents. <laughs> and we both thought we'd won. And you know the truth is we did. Indeed we did. I had been told early on in the program that a loving God, when you're in a situation where spiritual growth is no longer possible for you, will do one of two things. God will change you. God will change the situation. Or God will get you out of it. And I'm convinced today that that's what happened to us. From that day till now, he has, as far as I know, been sober. He doesn't live in Texas. He's uh, working on another wife. He'll get that straight. It'll take a while. Uh, seems to be more at ease and more spiritually sound than I ever thought he could have been. The price he had to pay was that he has nothing material. They live kind of day to day, you know. He really has nothing and no prestige and no power and none of those other seductive things that tend to throw us so far off the track. What about me? I'd never worked. You can't get a job by saying, I'm a damn good Alan on here, you're lucky to have me. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> there was a nosy Alan on that worked at a hospital in Dallas and she would not stay out of my business. You know how they are. Call, call, call. Come on over here, we'll find you a job. And I've never worked. I mean, my degree hangs over the washing machine. Come on. I'm 45 years old. I've never done anything. I can't work. You don't have a job that I could do. Finally, my sponsor said, Babs, why don't you go on over there just to shut her up? You know, most of the good stuff I've done in my life, I've done to shut somebody up. And I went. And sure enough, we went through all the little cards. I can't do that. No, mm -mm, no, uh-uh. Can't do that. Just getting ready to leave, and one of the women said, Say, does the management engineer have a new research assistant yet? No, she says the third one just quit a couple days ago. See, I should have known the third one just quit. And so they brought in the management engineer. Guess what? He was about 15 years younger than I. He was shy. He was ill at ease. And we were there for an interview, so I interviewed him. And I said to him, what kind of an engineer are you? He said, I'm an industrial engineer. I said, what in the world does an industrial engineer do in a hospital? Well, he said, I go into various departments. and I watch people doing work they've been doing for 15 or 20 years. I watch them for 15 or 20 minutes. Then I tell them how to do it better. I said, you're not going to understand this, son. I've been going to a meeting down there every night for eight years to learn how to stop doing that, and you tell me there's a career in it. <laughs> and then he said those magic words. He said, I need you, and I said, I know you do. <laughs> he said, can you be here at 8 in the morning? I said, you got a deal. And by the grace of God, I've been there at 8 in the morning ever since. You know, we have a prayer that we, it's in the big book about, uh, Michael mentioned it, God, I offer myself to thee. Be careful with that prayer, because it's a contract, you see. 
to deal. Because in it you say, take away my difficulties, and in return, I'll tell everybody about it. I'll tell them how much you love us. I'll tell them about your way of life. And I said that prayer every morning when I thought I couldn't make it. I was surrounded with people who told me over and over and over again that we were going to be okay. And I barely made it. I don't know how people like my mom went through the same thing with nobody. Nobody to tell them they were okay. Uh, I need to tell you just a little bit about the difficulties that were taken away. The things that I could not fix and I didn't think there would be. First of all was the job. Chet and I would sit in that office all by ourselves all day. I cried most of the day. Chet never said a word. He never questioned me. He had trouble dealing with other people. And so I would present the work that he did. I could do that. We were a terrific team. He loved to type. I don't type. <laughs> he was an engineer, but he didn't like to use a calculator. I love a calculator. So I did the engineering. He did the typing. What a team we were. My father-in-law and my mother-in-law died, and I was very concerned about Dad. He didn't see anybody but me, and I wasn't enough. And I was afraid he'd sit up in that department and lose his mind. He got a sore throat. I took him into the emergency room at the hospital one day. And the doctor that runs it said, do you mind if I talk to him? And I said, no. Within three minutes, he had convinced Dad he ought to be a volunteer there. So Dad bought the red vest. And two days a week until he died at the age of 89, my father-in-law went into the hospital with me to work his half day as a volunteer at the Radiation Out Outpatient Oncology Center. To this day, I go to a Safeway or something in Dallas, and a stranger will say to me, Excuse me, are you Mrs. Black? And you know, I always denied that when the children were little. I say yes, and they say, my wife underwent cancer treatment at Presbyterian. And I remember your father. He used to sit with me and bring me coffee. How is he? And then I have to explain that he died. But he's fine. He's fine. If you were to ask him what his job was there, he would tell you that he was there to help the old people out of their cars. And the truth was, he was looking for a widow who needed help with her portfolio. <laughs> My mother eventually came to live with us. She was showing signs of Alzheimer's, and I'm her only child. I'm her. I mean, I was it. I was it. And I would go off to work at Presbyterian and leave my mother in the care of a 84, 85, 86-year-old man who was legally blind. My mother thought he lived across the street and that he was trying to get in her pants. <laughs> and we survived that way for a great many years. My mother's gone now, too. 
we had children in college and there was no money left for them to stay in school and so the munificent state of Texas because they're terrific kids paid for their college education and it wasn't a loan it was a gift so many things where I knew there was no solution and God took them away I am here to tell you no matter what's going on in your life no matter how bad it looks no matter how you feel it's not the end of the world you and God are sufficient there is nothing nothing if you remember this program that you ever ever have to do alone If you ever find yourself stranded in Dallas, and if you fly, you will. <laughs> I go to this little ragtag group out in North Dallas called the Addison Group. Hell of a bunch of kids. Of course, most of them are too young to have suffered enough to have been there, but... If you'll give me a call, I'll come get you. And no matter what your persuasion, I'll take you to a meeting. We'll go to the Addison Group if it's open. If you're AA, I'll kind of dump in with those birds. I can't vouch for them, but you kind of earn your own in there. But if you come in my room, in my Al-Anon room, I know that my Al-Anons will treat you with the same sort of warmth and friendliness and hospitality that you've treated me. And we'll just have a hell of a meeting. Then afterwards, we'll go out to Denny's or someplace like that. I'll buy. We'll each have a cup of coffee and a piece of pie. <laughs> and we'll figure out what we need to do to fix your group. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much.